Today's reading is Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. It can be found on page 638 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. An inspirational passage to uh, Handel's Messiah and still inspirational today. This is God's word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he's humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly God, you are so gracious in how you meet us and how you uh, show us to yourself. Will you show yourself to be gracious now as we look into these words, these words that have been looked at for so long, they have such a history. And we look at them, or at least in some way attempt to look at them today as if your words don't change and we can rely on them. And whether we fully grasp that or whether we're very much in doubt that that's true, would you, um, would you speak to us all in the gracious way that you have made a habit of speaking to us? Would you come to us amidst our brokenness and messes while we would prefer to hide it from everyone? It's not hidden from you, and we're more of a mess than we care to admit. And your love comes to us and meets us in the middle of it. And you take on, in fact, you take on the brokenness and the mess yourself in a sort of great reversal that leaves us with being awash in your grace. So do that to us now, um, even through these words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, my family, my, my, little intern, my little nuclear family, my wife and kids, we... Uh, we're in this phase of dealing with California history because when you have a fourth grader, fourth grade is the year for a lot of that. Um, I, I don't remember much. I, I did go to school in California growing up, and um, so this is all new for me um, because that's, I sort of forgot everything um, that I could whenever I was learning something. Um, in one year and right out the next, but with, I mean, we went down to Ventura during the Thanksgiving break and we saw the mission there, the San Buenaventura Mission, and you start thinking about things and issues that are that are really fun. It, it's I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying thinking about what was, 
He was just asking all those questions about what was going on with this priest commissioned by a king uh, to go and set up these missionary outposts along the coast um, with this, you know, kind of we look back and can't help but see the the footnote of how that was really, you know, there's a very admirable, peaceful side of that that you could look at it from that angle or you could look at it as kind of kingdom expansion and creating harbors that could, you know, help the land grab um, and build relationships with people that you could rule, you know. So, I mean, there's sort of these footnotes to all of this. And you can see Father uh, Junipero Serra's statue down. I don't know if you, you should check out the Capitol Park if you haven't and see his statue just east and a little bit north uh, on the north side by L Street in Capitol Park. It's by the, the garden that has a pond in it. And there he is with the shape of California before him standing there. It's just a very reflective thing to go and stand and look at. Um, there's also these other stories that have trickled through as I've been a part of different reports and assignments. Um, stories from the travels of Lewis and Clark in Sacagawea, you know, um, um, and, and picking up on, oh, Thomas Jefferson uh, sent this letter for them to go and, and try to establish connection and make peace with all these different tribes and Sacagawea helped um, translate and what well, fascinating stories. You know, they're going to make peace, but as often goes with history, as we know, there's these, all these footnotes, right, that over time you almost those raise up to the surface, like um, they're having a, a grand, they're, they're, they're helping these natives have peace ceremonies between tribes, um, all kind of led by this exploring team of Europeans, really. And, and, and what turns out is really happening right after the ceremony is the two chiefs are at the side talking smack to each other about how this, this really meant nothing and, and I'm going to get you for what you did to my tribe. Um, and it all just going over the head of the explorers and, and at another juncture, the explorers are, I mean, they're just hungry. They've run out of supplies, but they've got this metal that they can fashion into weapons <laughs> to trade for corn, you know, on their peace mission. And you just kind of, there's these footnotes, right, to history. And so we learn, really, I think over time, we learn to dial down our hopes and our dreams for peace in this world. Over time, history teaches this so that we come to today, I mean, especially post-enlightenment, we're a little more pessimistic. And you hear a headline about how we've really whittled down that, um, those, you know, that important targets list for Al-Qaeda. You know, there's, there's just the, um, what are they called? Um, key, do you know the lingo that the people were trying to, to get with drone attacks? I don't even know. But the, those key figures, you know, there's not very many left. We've crippled their organization. And we all say, yes, we know now there will no longer be explosions in cities and, um, and buildings falling down, right? No, we're, our, our hopes and dreams, I think, even as we process headlines, they're, they're dialed down. We pull ourselves back. We draw back our hopes. And really, that is... You know, that is contrary to what this Advent season, what the Bible, the whole story beginning to end of the Bible is inviting you to do. And dialing up the hopes amidst a very broken, tension-filled, conflict-ridden, war, warring world that we live in. Dial up the hopes? Well, yes, because why? A child is born. <laughs> what? A child is born, Isaiah 9 says? child is born, a son is given. You know, you think about a baby, and um, Christmas time, it's all about this, this baby. If you're 
you know, in church productions and so forth. A baby, what is a, ba- what is a baby unable to do? A baby, baby is really unable to rile your personal defenses as you come into the room. In fact, don't we find ourselves acting so silly and ridiculous, like we would never act around anyone else with a, a baby all of a sudden it just melts us into all our pride is gone and we go and and we just something just switches. Um, I, having three kids, I mean sometimes I'll look at the video of me talking to watching, you know, the, the micro uh, developments of this baby, they've almost rolled over and I'm watching the video of how I t- was taking it, encouraging the baby to roll over and just the, I hear myself and I just kind of, wow, you know, almost embarrassed at the, the tone of voice and did I really say that? Was I really sounding like that? Oh, never showing this video to anyone. Um, but that's what babies do. They, they, they melt us down. No one, I have not yet had any kind of experience where I've seen an, a, an adult walk into the room where a baby is and say, what are you looking at? <laughs> um, you know, wh- can you imagine? You know, kind of get, kind of squaring up to baby, and um, you know, if you don't if you don't come through on my demands, I'm coming back with reinforcements next week. So you better. I mean, it just there's nothing. I mean, so it's ridiculous. There's no defenses that go up. It, we're disarmed almost completely by a baby. We can't make war on a baby. Really, we can't. Um, well, you know, the, there is a threat. The baby does threaten the parent. I've got to be honest. A baby threatens the parent's sleep, and that is no small thing. Talk to some of the newer parents. So the ba- there is a threat that the baby brings to the table, but nothing like what can happen in the grown-up world. So you can't make war on a baby, and, but if you think about it, in many ways, we often make war on God. We often are... Uh, squaring up to God with our questions and our doubts and our grievances. Uh, sometimes they, they feel very legitimate. And in fact, the Bible throughout the Psalms encourages us to bring and kind of air as a community and as individual those grievances, square up to God. Um, when God comes into your life, though, he does bring demands and we often don't experience them. This is why our defenses go up and we engage God as a threat because they don't feel very sweet, those demands that God brings into our life. And yet one who um, demands us, so much of us, there's a song, um, I think it's come now, Fount of Every Blessing. I might be getting that wrong, but the, the, the words, uh, demands my soul, my life, my all. A baby doesn't seem to bring demands. God brings all kinds of demands, but then he comes and he disarms us by coming into our lives as a baby. And that is just a picture, really, because if you know the bigger story than what Jesus' life is, is one picture after another about how God, when he makes his way, when he makes his incursions into your life, when he brings the threat of his demands, he just keeps coming with vulnerability. He just keeps coming where, you know, as a baby where he has no, I mean, everything's gone. All strength to reinforce his demands is gone. And, he, and, and, and it's possible if you experience that, if you become convinced of that and the penny drops that God really does meet us that way, those demands, the Christian can say those demands become sweet. They become sweet. We sing, we've sung about them today and at Christmas time we sing about it. God's demands become sweet because he meets us in vulnerability. Um, 
You know, I think it's good, though, to just admit. I mean, you have to have a starting point where you admit how much you are armed against God and how much your defenses are up a lot of the time with the advances, the unwelcomed advances, the incursions he makes into our life. Um, He seems, if you know the God of Scripture, he meets you through vulnerability, but he keeps keeps edging in. He keeps edging in, and that can be... Our, our guard can be up. I hope you're sensing at least a little bit how that can happen in the midst of your relationship with God and, and money and, and time and work and your calling and career and life and those forks in the, in the road. In every single place, almost, almost every day, there's opportunities to see life as how is God making his way into more and more aspects of my life? Just be aware that our guard is up and that really is a legitimate way to see it. But... There's also another way to see it. John Calvin, the Reformation theologian, or one of them, said, when talking about this passage in Isaiah 9, said that life without this king is restless and miserable. That's one legitimate way to look at it. I mean, you can look at a relationship with God and say, you know, these these incursions that I need to have my defenses up against God and all God's kinds of people in this world, you know, all those religious people that want to push their self into my life and tell me what to do. Another way to look at it is that life without this king is restless and miserable. Um, Isaiah 9 points us to something very different than a restless and miserable life, but something that the ancient Hebrew writers talked about and called Shalom. They call it shalom. It's it's peace, but it's bigger than peace. Let me just look at a quote here from from uh, Cornelius Plantinga, who who writes this: "The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere." peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. One of the, I mean, this story is told uh, from beginning to end in Scripture. One of the characters that's interesting when it comes to our own restless wandering is the story of Cain. You're going way back to those early stories where Cain uh, slays his brother, and then uh, God says, You will become a restless wanderer. And it, that's what's said about him. So, of course, then he, he does. He becomes a restless, he starts to wander. And he, he goes off to the land of Nod. Um, which I, I hope none of you are going there um, right now. I'll try to keep things going here. Um, he goes to the land of Nod, and at the land of Nod, then he decides to um, build a city, and the city is called Enoch. And, and so here's, here's this perfect example of how we try to deal with our restlessness and our wanderings and our, our lack of peace and shalom, really, in our lives. Make a city. I mean, we live in a city. We know what cities are like. There are places where you pursue things, where you make a name for yourself, where you um, can can get more opportunities than you can get elsewhere. And so whether we all have this sort of connection where we understand the restless wandering of Cain and trying to find some shalom, we can relate whether we're 
you know, working on legislation on a daily basis or lobbying downtown or whether we're a teacher of young children, whether we're a stay-at-home parent or whether we're a student occupying a desk. There's ways in which we're pursuing, we're grabbing hold and we're attempting to settle things in life. We're restless. We can all relate a little bit to it. And what Christmas, what Advent starts to say to us is, really how, how that restlessness, how that lack of peace actually finally gets dealt with. And so the angel, in talking to Joseph about this baby that's um, going to be born, um, this is how this, this interaction goes, goes down in, in the dream that Joseph has. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, which means he saves, because he will save his people from their sins. So on the one hand, the baby disarms us, disarms our defenses, but on the other hand, what the Bible is saying over and over and what Matthew is grabbing hold of and what the message to Joseph in a dream is grabbing hold of is that Isaiah 9 is also pointing us towards this baby who will finally, finally kind of pull all those strings together of our restless wanderings and show us where shalom is found. And it has to do with in dealing with our sins, with having our sins forgiven. And it's found not in a city, not in the pursuits that we make out of life, but in, what do you know, in a person. We'll find this kind of shalom. It begins with you, your mess, meeting this person. Shalom. And because of the restlessness of Cain and because of yours, um, what we can see in ourselves is that that really ends up being the number one problem, the messiness of our own sin. That's the first order of business that God wants to deal with. So um, you can actually, as a Christian then, um, if, you, if you have entered into that sort of uh, relationship with that person, um, you can see the Christian faith the way that Augustine talks about it in the worship guide on page 4. You can say things like this and actually mean them when he says um, about God's peace. He says, you called, shouted, broke through my deafness. You flared, blazed, banished my blindness. You lavished your fragrance. I gasped. And now I pant for you. I tasted you. I hunger and thirst. You touched me. And I burned for your peace. Someone might be saying um, that, well, you know, that's all fine and good, but that's a very personalized view of how we connect with God. Um, in other words, doesn't it expand beyond just me and God? And of course it does. This is, this is where we connect. This is where we personally encounter and experience it. It is personal. But Christians also are the people who don't stop Dreaming about what this shalom and this peace looks like. In fact, the idea is, and I know maybe your experience dampens your, your hope in this, but the idea is 
that these kind of people who have connected with this Prince of Peace who came as a baby, that they lead the way in certain aspects, in some kind of mysterious way, in a sort of a peace, a sort of a reconciling capability through their connection to this person and this babe and the infusion of something Christians have called the Holy Spirit in such a way that there are uh, glimpses and tastes of this reconciliation between broken people in broken relationships. 